Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We have been overly concerned, or not overly concerned, we have been rightly concerned with the accounting practices of the company, the P&L of the company, um, and, and a lot of work gets poured over the that sort of numerical assessment. I think all I'm saying is we need to apply that same assessment and same ongoing reporting uh, view to the other areas of due diligence that are required. In this episode, I'm joined by Brandon Daniels, president of Exeger, and we take a deep dive into the Theranos case, not from the criminal fraud of Elizabeth Holmes, but from the due diligence perspective both in ongoing due diligence and point-in-time due diligence involving investments. A fascinating discussion. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And boy, you are in for a treat today because I have back with me Brandon Daniels. And we're going to look at the Theranos matter. But we're going to look at it not focusing on the criminal trial of Elizabeth Holmes, but some other issues that Brandon has raised that I think uh, really dive into the heart of the compliance professional's work in any third party, but specifically on potential business partners or even potential investments. So, Brandon, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. Brandon, could you tell us your current role at Exeter? Yeah, so I'm I'm the president at Exeter. Um, I I report to the CEO and the board, and basically. I'm responsible for all of our commercial and operational growth. Um, We have seen an immense shift in the appetite uh, in large corporates and in the federal government over the last two and a half, three years um, uh, to manage risk, to effectively manage third-party risk and supply chain risk. Um, and we're looking at a huge, uh, uh, huge opportunity um, to grow and to and to make the world a safer place. Whether it co- whether it's in modern slavery um, and the identification of issues in your supply chain, or it's uh, climate change and and being able to promote and support um, companies that are helping to do good around the world. So I think. Um, this role is is largely meant to take us into that that future opportunity and and to help us um, capture the momentum that we've already been able to uh, generate over the last few years. Well, Brendan, as I said in my introduction, I wanted to visit with you about the Theranos matter. 
The trial is ongoing, although both the prosecution and the defense have rested. We're waiting for uh, closing arguments. But I wanted to maybe look at a couple of different angles that uh, you brought up that really intrigued me. The first one is uh, due diligence on potential business partners and investments. And I know you and Exeger have really tried to get the message across that there aren't third-party agents in the, in the sales side. There aren't vendors in the supply chain. There are third parties. Uh, but does that include potential business partners or even investments if you're uh, a hedge fund, private equity, or in, an institutional investor? Is that really different from due diligence on other third parties that we traditionally see or not? No, I mean, I think the the interesting thing that Theranos flagged for me is the ongoing risk that is not captured in most due diligence processes, right? So um, when you look at uh, investment due diligence, when you look at um, due diligence from a um, uh, from a from a vendor or third party perspective, um, they're usually decoupled, right? Usually, if you're looking at um, uh, supply chain due diligence or vendor due diligence, it's the company itself looking at its vendors and trying to understand where its supply chain weaknesses are. Um, on the investment side, it's a point in time. And you look at the dynamics of the business, right? Um, the fact is that those need to come together and couple much more tightly. And due diligence can't be one and done. Whether you're an investor, um, you're a parent company looking after subsidiaries and branches, you are a uh, company that is um, working with a partner on a joint venture, um, or if you're uh, a company and you're doing due diligence on your vendors, the risks today um, will change tomorrow. And so you have to continuously monitor the issues um, uh, in all due diligence to make sure that your investments, to make sure that your, your decisions in terms of production, your decisions in terms of your capabilities are sound. Um, and that continuous monitoring of your due diligence, frankly, is not happening um, on the investment side. It's happening more traditionally on the vendor side um, with the companies that are um, uh, managing the vendors. And so the first place where we need to see coupling is in the idea of ongoing due diligence. And I'll give you an example of this in the context of Theranos. It struck me right away seeing the, the Theranos evidence, um, the Theranos due diligence, the description of the due diligence that had been completed, that they captured a point in time. If they had done what we, for instance, did in the Joint Acquisition Task Force, Tom, where we were monitoring and assessing uh, the viability of companies to join the fight in providing PPE and medical devices and pharmaceuticals to our healthcare front lines, they would have seen the issues that we saw in some companies. First, they would have seen uh, an issue in terms of supply chain uh, viability. 
So was this company buying equipment that would truly meet the mission of an innovative product? Uh, or were they coupling with and paying partners and in- integrating with companies that were doing traditional blood testing, right? You would have seen that if you had done that so- sort of supply chain research. The second is, um, were the right skill sets in the company, right? Did they have a viable degree of um, knowledge and expertise to know that what they were trying to do was possible? And then lastly, um, given the timelines that they were going to execute against, were they ramping up production quickly enough? Were they actually buying the volume of equipment and the and and creating the capability that could have gone out to however many thousand Walgreens, right? Um, those are the questions that we ask when we're doing due diligence on a company that's you know set up for defense acquisition or is going to be um, uh, working with HHS. If investors did that kind of due diligence, it would transform uh, their risk picture and also give them certainty on novel and critical innovations like the one that Theranos was espousing to be uh, trying to tackle. So how do you, it seems to me that many of the investors in Theranos uh, were essentially betting on the come, that this was a great idea and it didn't really matter at that point whether or not um, they had either viable product or a plan to scale up or were even buying the wrong or the right types of equipment to manufacture is 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 how does the how do these types of issues come in if you're just taking a flyer on something yeah i mean it's a really big flyer <laughs> you know i mean i think you can you can moderate your um investment based upon um, different stages of maturity in a company, right? And getting to the kind of multi-billion dollar valuation that Theranos did um, on a flyer is, it, I mean, that's a tough pill to swallow. But when you look at a flyer, what you have to do is you have to constantly titrate the amount of scrutiny you're going to put against that investment. Right. So um, it's a great idea. Everyone deserves democratized blood testing, disease management, nutrition management, so on and so forth. Right. We all desire and want that, especially now with covid. Right. Everybody is dying for accurate, fast testing, um, especially in the area of disease management. And so it's a demand but when you take a flyer, you also have to say, um, well, what are indicators of good, right? And one of the one of the indicators of good is the right kind of uh, materials being purchased, utilized, and then um, developed and produced by the company. And the sort of opaque aspect of this was that the company espoused a degree of conservatism with sharing their intellectual property. So how do you check and challenge something, right? How do you say, well, I get it. We don't want to, we don't want to 
have the company forfeit what is potentially breaking uh, cutting edge innovation. Um, but at the same time, we want to check and challenge it. Well, one of the first flags that I would have seen uh, if I was asked to do supply chain due diligence on this company is all the relationships that they had set up with traditional blood testing equipment. Why is that occurring? Why is that occurring at that scale? If it was for testing and development, comparison, you wouldn't have expected Siemens equipment um, uh, and, uh, and, and other types of traditional uh, blood testing machines to have been used at the scale that they did, right? Um, the other thing that you can do is you can, you can test whether or not the, the production capacity, the units that they intend to achieve – um, because at some point this did move to a commercial enterprise, Tom, like at, at a point they said, we're going to be in Walgreens. These things are going to work, right? Uh, you can test whether or not the investments that you've made are bearing out in terms of market economic activity. And you can do that through looking at leasing. You can do that at looking through major equipment purchases, right? Um, and those types of supply chain due diligence are good indicators of whether or not a company is actually moving towards a viable product. And if you see those indicators or you see the lack of, of um, uh, the, the lack of red flags, well, then, you know, maybe you continue to take that flyer. But in the case of Theranos, where you would have seen these issues arise, you may want to take a deeper, deep dive, right? And you may want to scrutinize whether or not that flyer is evolving in the way that you would originally expected or anticipated it to. Brendan, you also mentioned the leadership capability. Many startups have a le- leader who has a vision, and I think Elizabeth Holmes did have a vision. Uh, they are not really execution people. They may not even be operational people, but they are visionaries. And how do you think through the leadership that a company has in place from uh, the due diligence perspective? It, this is a really, really tough point because maverick leaders, leaders that have a unique vision, a unique idea, and then tap into a fundamental, almost primitive need in a market are always going to get a lot of attention especially ones that are cult of personality, which um, Elizabeth Holmes rightly was. She had that, that charismatic and enigmatic view of the world. But the one thing that I always look at, and, and again, I mean, I just go back to the work that we did to do diligence, 11,000 companies in COVID for industry and federal government um, uh, acquirers, Um, and procurement uh, leads, the one thing that we always looked at is, does the company really have the expertise at the very top to understand that what they're attempting to do is possible? Because you'd have to imagine, and I'm not going to comment on Elizabeth Holmes because, you know, the jury's still out um, and we're going to learn what uh, uh, a court of law thinks the um, ground truth is here. But when you look at a leader or you look at a, uh, a person 
that is attempting such an outsized goal, you have to understand whether or not they know that goal is possible and really understand whether whether or not they have the capacity, the expertise, the fundamental understanding of the components of the device or the innovation that would be necessary to know it's possible, right? I mean, we invent things all the time at Exeter. And at a fundamental level, we always know that those things are going to be possible um, because we know the underlying dynamics of databases. We know the underlying dynamics of what we can do in code. We know how far we can push artificial intelligence and what today is really outside of our um, uh, outside of our reach, even if it's a little stretch past arm's length. And so when I'm doing due diligence on a, on a set of key management personnel, Tom, what I do is I try to look at not experience because, you know, you can have a young, brilliant, innovative mind that's come up with a great idea like a Steve Wozniak or a Steve Jobs or a, or a Bill Gates. You can have a young, maverick set of folks that really understand something deeply um, that they've helped to build and they're going to change the world with it. So that can happen, um, but really understand whether or not they understand the art of the possible. And, and how do you do that practically? Well, the first thing is I love prototypes. I love um, people that have been in an industry, understand the issue, and have had to do it by hand, right? Henry Ford didn't create the production line uh, that generated the Model T, not knowing how custom car builders uh, built cars prior to the assembly line, right? So first, you do have to have a degree of knowledge on how the process works today, have recreated that process in a prototype that you can demonstrate you have a complete understanding of, and even if it was all manual, even if it was, you know, done in the most slapdash, you know, sort of haphazard of ways, the first time that Bill Gates turned on a computer, it worked, right? And I bet, it, and I bet it was ugly. <laughs> um, and so the first thing is when I look at key management personnel, it's do they have an, a, a fundamental understanding of how the core parts of the process work? Do they have an understanding? Have they lived the market need? And then um, finally, have they prototyped the product to the point where you could actually demonstrate that it will work, even if you're eons away from it being productized and scaling? The second thing that I look at whenever I look at key management personnel is a track record, right? And so, you know, um, uh, Sonny Balvani and Elizabeth Holmes, great folks. But putting in a seasoned, uh, you know, medical professional, a seasoned medical device uh, company partner uh, in that organization and creating the right management team to assess whether or not what they were doing is viable is so important. You know, we saw this a lot. We see this a lot in major investments that our clients are doing. We often have suggestions, right? And some of those suggestions are they should get a partner company. 
you know, with Moderna, they paired with Lanza because Moderna didn't have the production, the hot production facilities to um, create and to manufacture uh, their uh, mRNA vaccine at scale. But Lanza did. Right. And so very often you have to combine people with partners that can both test the metal of the invention and help the key management personnel um, understand where they may have uh, gaps. And then finally, you know, there are a couple of very cautionary tales that we've seen in the last few years as IPOs have fallen apart. But beware of the maverick. Right. It's it's not a. It's not a negative thing to have somebody that's just that dynamic, but uh, I think it's worthwhile to scrutinize um, those situations where things seem too good to be true, because often they are. We'll be right back with more from Brandon Daniels after this message from our sponsor. Brandon, if I change the focus just a little bit, and, and once again, sticking with Theranos, who would you suggest be on the due diligence team or perhaps functions that should? Yeah, be I mean, that, that's a yeah, that's a great question. Right. So you obviously want to conduct just traditional due diligence. Right. So investors, um, investment, uh, you know, you want great legal advice. Um, in terms of due diligence, but in, in a, in a novel concept like this, or in anything where you're really getting into very technical areas, the first thing I would say is you want a technical expert. You want somebody that really understands the industry, really understands the process, really understands how the, um, innovation is going to work and how it's going to be practically applied because you have to do a technical assessment. And and in and then the work we do with customers, we're often doing that first step in conjunction with an expert um, to, to determine whether or not this innovation has legs or this investment has legs. The second thing that you want is somebody that knows the industry, right? And knows the logistics, knows what good looks like, can help you set up and monitor on an ongoing basis the indicators of what scale looks like. And then finally, um, I would say that you want somebody that really understands risk management long term, right? Because um, the fact is, an idea um, that isn't possible um, becomes fraud when you create a loss. And so, having someone that really understands what a organization needs to put in place from a governance perspective, from a compliance perspective, from a third-party monitoring perspective to make sure that you can manage a business that's in an, in an innovative area and that is creating um, uh, something that is going to receive this much investment and this much attention to make sure that you've got the right governance processes in place, uh, the right stakeholders in place to make sure that you don't end up in a situation where your investment um, essentially evaporates. Um, and I think with that due diligence team, and again, I'm adding a couple of new pieces here, right? The idea of 
an operational expert is always really on the table, but having them conduct, you know, uh, open source due diligence on, on the supply chain and whether or not the parts, the pieces are even available, that that's a new concept, right? That's only, that's only something that's even possible in the last few years. So, um, it's one having the right team, but then two, it's making sure that you're doing the right types of due diligence. So open source due diligence is going to give you a view into the company at, at the snapshot in time and on an ongoing basis that you've never been able to see before. The second piece is making sure that you set up ongoing monitoring after an investment has been made. Again, novel concept, not something most people have done. Um, you know, outside of maybe, you know, uh, board level or shareholder level engagement, um, you know, with management staff, it's a novel concept, but I think it's something that the Theranos sort of tale tells us we have to do. So it's not just who, um, which I think people bring to the table, but it's the what do they do that has to change. Brandon, one of the things that uh, perhaps is a little troubling in the compliance realm is that I feel like many pre-acquisition due diligence is focused on just identifying red flags. And you're talking about a much broader uh, type of due diligence and having ongoing monitoring based upon that due diligence. Would that be a fair assessment? I think what I'm talking about is a level of due diligence that is taking the same degree the same degree of, of effort that you would traditionally see in financial due diligence, Tom, and then applying it in other areas and then requiring the same kind of reporting that you would get on financial reporting in other areas, right? We, are, we, have, been overly, um, we have been overly concerned, or not overly concerned, we have been rightly concerned with the accounting practices of the company, the PL of the company, um, and, and a lot of work gets poured over the, that sort of numerical assessment. I think all I'm saying is we need to apply that same assessment and same ongoing reporting uh, view to the other areas of due diligence that are required. For instance, reputational criminal and, criminal and regulatory issues that may stifle a company or operational risk uh, that starts to evolve as, for instance, machines stop working and you start to outsource your blood testing almost exclusively tra to traditional providers. Brendan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on uh, these topics we've talked about in this podcast, where could they go? Yeah, so there's there are two great places. Uh, the first is Exeger.com. We've got a lot in our sort of thought leadership area up on the site. But then the second place where we've covered a lot of these topics with experts from around the industry, right? From people that are running compliance departments, people that are running big invest investment portfolios. We've we've posted a lot of that on our LinkedIn feed. And I would encourage people to go and join our LinkedIn feed as well. Brennan, as always, I greatly enjoy having the chance to visit with you. This is slicing and dicing 
Theranos in a completely different direction than most of the commentators have looked at. And uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation. Perfect. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate your time. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I would urge you to check out John Katos's website. Uh, he's got a ton of research materials, a lot of papers directly applicable for the compliance professional. I've read them, and I know you would enjoy and learn a lot from reading them. Also read his five-part series on uh, that was in the Harvard Business Review. I've linked to that as well. We have a new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The History of Insider Training, where Professor Karen Woody interviews some of her students on this most interesting topic. I hope you will check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.